0: like I, I like laughing month that's in the neighborhood Ooh, yeah that place um, is bad they make great beer yeah um i like um
1: and the, uh, i like belgian stuff with the oh, natural man. yeasts and my favorite my girl yeah you're
0: making me you making me well thirsty. belgium they
1: do that in belgium that's so cool Is they the, the yeasts come from the air they're like natural yeast that's why they've been brewing beer for in
0: the water. Hundreds of years the water is really good and it's different styles but, yeah, so that is, I think that's what I'm going to end up doing. That's so cool. Speaking of, you know, where we're supposed to end up. Right, I'm right. thinking that way. Right. So. I, have, see, I, I, I always even... wanted to be an actress, and now I'm
1: drunk. <laughs> uh, I'm an actress, no, I'm a seagull. Uh, <laughs> check off. uh Well... That's. It's nice that you have a. That you have a, a somewhere to pin that, like. You I'm know, in a, That's if
0: I don't fuck it up. Oh, you'll do great. I have a feeling. Sometimes I. I like to self sabotage. We yeah, all do it. You're though you're good.
1: I mean, you're such an amazing memory. It, this will be, and when you're interested in something, it's easy to know about it. So you're gonna excel. And I like beer. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. yeah. It seems like boom boom. There's a, you can get a a degree in it at Davis too. Ah, that they yeah. have. They have what? Zimmerology is wine. Winemaking and I, I don't know what the beer one is. I don't know. But if I've the seen same. the fact that they have courses on that now.
0: Yeah, they and have like a whole programs side. and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty cool too. I heard about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if, if you're already getting stuff like that, you wouldn't need. I mean, I have. It's a whole industry, and it's yeah. great, and it's growing. It's growing. Yeah. And, and especially it, in San Francisco, because all these rich fucks. If you're gonna pay nine dollars for a coconut, you'll pay. <laughs> 12 bucks for a good beer. This is beer. why
0: you can pay $2 here. <laughs> and
1: we're only asking for $2. <laughs> we are only asking $2. for 2
0: It's just $2. <laughs> Think of it as your imaginary beer in your hand when you're sitting here laughing
1: your Right. Song. Exactly.
0: Yes. That's imaginary. imaginary beer. It
1: tastes really good, doesn't it? Mmm. So crisp. So crisp. <laughs> $2. <sighs> I mean, and that's the thing. Is it like, is this the end? Is this... No. Is this what I'm... Is it like, I'm supposed to run vacation the radio? Yeah. This is it. You have the uh, vacation. Well, is it blues. perspective? Is it that this place is fine and it's just my perspective on it is fucked? I mean, um, and that's what I think, like, because it was fine before and I thought I was doing great and now all of a sudden, it's not good enough. And, you know, I don't know if uh, I just... It's a cr- it's hard. I, it's hard. And and I and even thinking this way makes me feel like a bad person cuz I feel like I'm being egocentric and narcissistic and self-centered. But I'm like I've got I, I I have to have a purpose. Otherwise I don't know how to direct my energy. I mean and it, <laughs> I just don't I don't know how to I'm like I got do I just should I write another novel? I, I don't know. Like, I was like, well, I guess I could just put a lot of t- time into Jane Six, or I could. Are you like I, I don't know? Is it the fact
0: that there's so much responsibility with this? It's very exhausting, or well, is it just?
1: It's that this place isn't because you're self-sufficient monetarily without me making the extra money from the comedy that I attempt to do. The place doesn't survive. So, cause there aren't enough shows. So there's a lot of pressure on me monthly to, right. to keep the overhead on this place going and to Absolutely. be able to not only pay the overhead here, but then try to pay myself and then also try to pay other people. Um, You know, I have to pay the tax person, insurance is coming up, but there's the number of shows that respect this place and use it as a space. There aren't enough of them to sustain it. So it just comes down to me every month. And when I work hard at comedy and it's not monetarily, the fruition isn't there, you know, it's like i don't know what else to do Mm. so it's me working so hard not seeing the results i want to try to keep this place open yeah and so it's really frustrating it's like i could i I could do something else like i don't know i've got two master's degrees look what do i do that's the thing though i don't know how to have a Job that people. (laughs) And
0: then I think you mentioned this earlier—the fact of regret if you were to like stop this and then move on to something else—and like you would have been like, "Did I make the right choice?" Right, and then and what if I hate myself for making that choice and all? the Yeah, and I'm
1: Ah! I'm coming up on five years of being the director, so the first three months that I did it I did it for free I didn't even take a stipend five years ago I, I did it for three months I worked like really really hard and uh, it started happening and working and then you know we had all to California for a while for two and a half years and God bless them and the $25,000 they gave us over two and a half years and I appreciate them so much, and I can never thank them enough. But I didn't you know, mind they stuff could bo- stuff in boxes. Yeah, right. Yeah. But they could. They after they they could no longer support us monetarily in that way, and that's fine. And we figured out other ways to do it, and I figured out other ways to do it. And now we're at this place where, like, my ways of figuring out how to do it, it's not. It's just not working. So I'm like, I need help, and I've been asking for help, but. You know, and I think that saying it's two dollars for a open mic, I think that's asking for help in a way that I know how to do it, that doesn't tax people too much, right. but that, I mean, if we made 15 comics, if they all gave two bucks. That's 30 but If there's um, 25 comics and we make 50 bucks, that usually happens. Like on a on a, I see the lists. We usually have tw- between, you know, 18 and 25 comics. So that revenue is instrumental right now to keep cuz if we made 30 bucks on the be 30, 120 a week oh it would be like having another show it would be amazing it would be great yeah. it would be if it was for like that 400 a month wow wow that would it would be unbelievable and that can happen and that could happen it's just Help. yeah i know and everyone always says, you, you just, you never ask for help. I'm like, dude, I totally ask for help. People just don't like the ways I ask for help, I guess. But I just, I don't, or, you know, you could buy a lighter for a dollar, or you could buy a button, or you could buy a t-shirt, buy a festival t-shirt for $15. You can support us here at Beauty Radio. But I mean, or, oh, I mean, everyone says it's important to them. Like, everyone says, oh, wow, I really respect what you're doing. And it's like, okay. Okay. (laughs) Show me. You could press the donate button at our website. But then I feel like fucking KQED and I feel like a dick. And I'm like, because well, does this have value? That's the thing is I'm at the point now where I don't know what does and doesn't have value. I'm so confused. Because I see the same comedians here that are at Cobbs, that are at the Punchline, that are everywhere. They're They're at Cheaper Than Therapy, that are here, that I book, that everyone books. We're all the same. But somehow we're not like i i, I don't get it I don't, I don't know what's i don't know what's has value and what isn't I, at this point i don't know what's funny and what isn't I don't know what's good and what's not anymore. I, I'm so confused because I used to, maybe maybe I am a pile of dog shit. Maybe I do suck, but I'm like, but I've written a bunch of novels. Like but then that's just dedication. Not, that's you're not you're necessarily not, talent. You're definitely not dog shit. But so no. but I'm so confused because like I think my jokes are really funny and I have them memorized and I've got a good little act and I feel like I'm pretty good at karaoke too. But but that doesn't it's still it's nothing. It doesn't it I'm I don't I don't know. I don't know I don't understand anymore. All I know is that Rick and Morty is funny. That's all I know. Uh, that's it. That's like, then they have butts and farts and stuff and it's like juvenile f- humor, but then they say fuck all the time and I think that's funny. Mexico. I, I, Mexico. I just, I don't, I'm, I'm you sat on confused. the beach a lot and thought about this, didn't you? No, I didn't think about this at all. I didn't think about anything. I just enjoyed the waves and the birds and, like, butterflies and shit and, like, looking at rock formations and looking at shells and swimming in the water, watching Jonathan, drinking beers. Like, I didn't think about this at all. I didn't want to ruin my fucking vacation oh, with I my meant- existential shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm so ex- I came back and I immediately got existential. I was just like, oh, what am I doing with my life? But then I have to, I have to put this in fucking perspective. I'm a rich fucking white bitch, and I get to say things like, "What am I doing with my life?" I just feel so unfulfilled right now. Like, I really need some meaning. I just came back from vacation, and I just don't even know why I'm here. Okay. I just need probably to do some more yoga and. First some world more. problems. I need to get some crystals and do some life work. You know what I mean. <laughs> but I need to drink some nine dollar coconut water. It's totally cold pressed. I going to do a cleanse. <laughs> Only kiwis on Tuesday, okay? The little, the little those little seeds are like scrub brushes. They're way better than chia seeds. I'm telling you.
0: I gotta get my Coachella ticket
1: too. It's I have. Like la ah, Lara. Com- <laughs> I can't wait, Lara. I am I mean I have to realize like oh I have running water and I can drink water out of the tap you have a and home. I have all this weed and I have a home and you like, got someone um, that loves and you and I have someone that loves me and so like all of this like you know german angst of like what am I doing with my life it's like oh please <laughs> right like fucking shut the fuck up
0: i try to look i try to look at the best things sometimes rather than the worst because i look at the worst things when i go to the marina
1: uh. <laughs>
0: uh. I, the, yeah it's that shit
1: la yeah yoga you're no catcha yeah. you're no catchback I, I, I like your catchback. i have so much cuter than your old catchback
0: ah, I, I heard uh, you're uh, in, uh, <laughs> you're in cabo you're in cabo right cabo
1: you, you made i sugar? got my second kubi in cabo ah <laughs> oh,
0: <Lara. laughs>
1: We should, we should make them sound like seagulls. Okay. And, and do I make fun of them just because I want a coach bag? No. Cause who needs that?
0: But didn't you have something like that? You played this part. I did. I had, a, I
1: had a, I had a Yeah. Louis, the Louis Vuitton backpack. Yeah. So ugly. <laughs> that little The little LV on the little brown tiny thing. What a. Um,
0: <laughs> you played this part in another life before home. and you, that wasn't fun either
1: <sighs> well that's the nothing or yeah. everything is fun like i have had so much fun in in, in in san jose del cabo i just
0: want to move down there well maybe that's also maybe it's maybe doable. you need to go there like every couple of months
1: <laughs> yeah well yeah i mean again If you guys want to hit me up for my awesome travel tips, you can donate $5 to the Mutiny Radio (laughs) website and then email me at director at mutinyradio.fm and say, hey, I donated $5. Give me your Cabo Sand Dog Shit tips because I
2: have
1: (laughs) them. Dude, I will tell you all about how to get... You get off the plane, and where you don't take a forty dollar cab ride into town, you spend two dollars and fifty cents. Seventy. Shh, don't give them for free. Seven, right. Seventy. I'll just tell them the first one. Seventy four pesos para dos on el autobus <laughs> takes you right into town, drops you right in front that of the Airbnb that we Spanish. stay at. Oh my God! I gringo Spanish the shit out of it. They laugh. They think it's hilarious. <laughs> and I'm like, Gracias para todos. <laughs>
3: Oh my God. Why does like, es <laughs> why do you sound
1: like favor. Why you sound like you're from
0: Texas when you are yeah, speaking Spanish?
1: Like tex Max. It's, uh, <laughs> what did I learn this time? Uh, me entiendo más para, para me palabra. Nope, palabra is words, habla. Is talk. Habla is talk. So I understand more than I speak, but I was like mi novio palabra espanol perfecto and then <laughs> it's like my boyfriend knows the words perfect I'm like see yeah you got it and he's like yeah it's habla ah, claro. yeah so good times well we did it we got through it we got through a, a thing and we're back in Mexico everything's gonna be okay
0: uh, see everything's gonna be okay I think so I, I'm, well let's just talk I'm glad we didn't talk that much about you know who Cheeto well
1: we're gonna we're, we're gonna end with one of our old songs oh yeah uh, I don't know if you want we could we've got the 45 Alive rap <laughs> we've got um, FBI <laughs> we've got Heavens to Betsy that's Betsy DeVos oh we should do Heavens to Betsy we've <laughs> got the Kellyanne Conway Pence's Whack <laughs> Steve Bannon Man the, the original Susan Olson. <laughs> And Uncle Tom and if you remember this one women who work women who work <laughs> she doesn't work she doesn't work that was the Ivanka from her from her, her book. book yeah so you you can <laughs>
0: Oh, wow. They're all so good. I don't know. It's between Heavens to
1: Betsy, Steve Bannon, man, and Women Uh, Who Work. I don't remember Heavens to Betsy at all. So, let's do that one. Okay. Let's do Heavens to Betsy. Thank you guys for listening to the AltaCast. Thank you, Latoya, for putting me in a better mood. Oh, put Uh, put, put on a happy face. Yeah, I will try. (laughs) I would imagine that there's probably a gun in the school. I would imagine there's probably a gun in the school. Bang, bang. To protect from potential grizzlies. Bang. Grizzly bears bang. in Michigan. Did not the know there were grizzly bears. bears in Michigan? Ooh. Ever heard about calling by? <laughs> there weren't no grizzlies, just a bunch of kids. And coats killing other kids. Don't worry, because at least they're buying guns, which is good for the economy, right? Betsy DeVos claimed that historically black colleges and universities are pioneers of school choice. What? That started from the fact that where there were too many students in America who didn't have equal access to education. Just, just segregation. Brown versus education, 1954. Not enough education, just segregation. Segregation, yeah. I love homeschooling and charter schools All that stuff, cause it's for segregation. Not education, segregation. Let's bring it back. Let's make America great again. Make America great again. Bitch needs to read a book. Make America great again. When the white people were in charge. Yeah. Uh soft dark money. My family is the biggest contributor of soft money. Soft, soft to the Republican National Committee by my way, in, by my way, in. By my way for- did it buy my way in? Did it buy my way in? Yeah. Oh. I have decided to stop taking offense at the suggestion that we are buying influence. Oh, heckless With, with us, soft money buying it's influence. Soft money with with soft money. Oh, now I simply concede the point. They are right. We do expect something in return. For investment like a job like a job like i don't know how about education secretary uh, oh grizzly bears in classrooms oh let's oh. shoot them we expect to foster a conservative governing philosophy consisting of limited government and respect for traditional american virtues that word tradition again and virtues oh she means white american virtues She needs white. American American virtues. Oh she she needs white. And we expect a return on our investment. She bought herself in. Bought herself in. She's white. Uh Uh-huh. We can okay. There we go. So we're gonna be rapping to to the dulcet beat tones of uh, Iggy Azalea's "No Medi- No Mediocre Feet," which I think is what Kellyanne Conway did. Is "No Mediocre Feet" here? All uh, oh. break it down. What you think about that, Sheriff? Whoa. Are you gonna are you gonna bring them the truth? Are we gonna bring it? Bring in the truth. About Absolutely. Skinny, skinny little ladies, skinny rice little cakes. Rice cakes, the rice cakes of news. There was an article this week that talked about how you can surveil someone through their phones, through their certainly through their television sets, any numbers of different waves. And microwaves? Microwaves. And microwaves? Microwaves. They turn into cameras, etc. So you just know that's just a fact of modern life. Quick. Modern life. Quick. Quick. 30 uh. seconds watching you 30 seconds watching you Heat up that Hot water What do you eat? Kelly Ann Conway Hot water Hot water Maybe some tea There's no calories in tea, you see Oh uh. Sorry, Kelly Ann We're watching you I think the big lesson to the political class Is to stop listening so much to each other And start listening to the people political class stop listening to each other we gotta listen to the people they're not listening to each other anyways what could they be talking about maybe microwaves microwave the CIA is after you after you microwaves they are actually listening to the people we're watching you usually based on an economic agenda white working class voters don't buy into this whole biology chemistry abortion gender agenda as much as they want more take-home pay they want affordability i want some money too (laughs) affordability ability with their abortions usually based on an economic agenda white working women voters don't buy into this whole biology chemistry abortion gender agenda as much as they want more take home pay yeah equality e- equality let's ratify the 19th amendment
0: uh, yeah, woman suffrage. <laughs> and suffrage. Suffrage.
1: And suffrage. And suffrage. And suffrage. She's out for suffrage. <laughs> watching you, Kelly and Conway knows about suffrage. Um, because they're watching. She's you. white too. She is, and so thin. I thought we always just listened to thin, pretty women, don't we? Just do that. Yeah. They're clearly telling the truth. She is clearly telling the truth. Many Americans are very concerned with the lack of vetting that's going on show Uh, me your papers show me your papers show me that you belong here show me your papers show me your papers isn't that why they signed that new vetting act Uh, oh no if you don't show the papers we might think you're a terrorist Donald Trump has addressed many times that his main concern is making sure that we have a system in place that we completely lack now, which is those countries that tend to train and export and harbor terrorists where we do not have proper vetting are places where we're going to need to have better vetting. And he's made that very clear. Better vetting? Is it clear to you now? (laughs) Yay! We did it again! With we, did mixtape. we did it! I think those are so funny. I think they're so funny. <laughs> it should be a mixtape. I don't even know how to do anything with those. But if you are a fan of the AltaCast and you want. And you love Mutiny Radio. Help us make money with those. Can't we make money? Those are funny. We can make money. How with are that. those not super? Like they're they're clever and they're totally <laughs> they're on the now spot too. And they're yeah. And we did them as one. That was off. freestyling. We freestyling. I know. <laughs> yeah. We're awesome. Okay. Well, uh, we'll see you guys next week on the. Out- Man. <laughs>
4: Everyone, This is Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist with Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People, where we bring people together from different cultures and different backgrounds to have comfortable conversations about race and bring race to the people. If you have ever wanted to talk about race, but were afraid of saying the wrong thing or afraid of not being heard, then this podcast is for you. And if you want to hear more episodes, please go to www.raceconvo, convo like conversation raiseconvo.com. I am so happy today to have two extremely wonderful guests, Tracy Brown and Howard Ross, who are both colleagues and friends of mine. Tracy Brown and Howard Ross are both longtime thought leaders. They're authors and thought leaders in the field of Diversity in the field of inclusion and in the field of leadership. So, I am going to ask Howard and Tracy both to say a few words about themselves and say a little bit about your demographics since people can't see you. I see you, but they can't see you. So, let's start with you, Tracy. Great. Thanks,
5: Emma. So, demographics I'm black. I'm a baby boomer. I'm a business owner. I live in Texas, but I grew up in the Midwest, Missouri, Illinois, Kansas. And from the age of two, I have been engaged in conversations about race. So I consider myself a bridge builder and do a lot of work with organizations all over the United States related to all aspects of diversity and inclusion.
6: And Howard. Yeah. Hi, Sima. Hi, Tracy. I've been for the past 35 years doing consulting in diversity and inclusion and organizational change, as you say, a lot of leadership work as well, particularly focusing on the unconscious bias and how it impacts people's behavior, and more recently on how we create uh, environments of belonging where people can really feel connected and part of either the workplace environment or the community environment that they live in. And my demographics, I'm a six-foot-five white Jewish guy in my late 60s, so have been doing this for a long time.
4: Howard, you mentioned belonging. hmm you say something about belonging? And either one of you, could you, could you say, what do, what do you mean by belonging?
6: Well, you know, it's interesting, Simba, because my dear friend and, and mentor, Dr. Janetta Cole, has said for years that uh, diversity is being invited to the dance and inclusion is actually being asked to dance. But what I would add is belonging is is actually having some of your music playing. In other words, when we're trying to create environments of belonging, what we mean are are environments where it's not just that people who have been traditionally marginalized or welcomed into the environments that those of us who are in the dominant group have created, it's that they're actually part of creating those environments, that their voice, that their experience, that their culture influences the very envir- environments that they're a part of. And it creates a great, greater sense of home. And that usually means that we have some sense of shared destiny, that what happens to you could happen to me. Some shared of sense interdepend- sense of interdependence, that what happens to you is likely to impact what happens to me. Some sense of shared values. And I don't mean that that means we agree on everything, but at least we have some container of values that's similar. And usually in environments like that, we find that we're more able to be ourselves, that we feel less protected, like we need to guard ourselves more.
4: And how about you, Tracy? What do you think when you think about belonging? I like the concept of belonging, you know, the word
5: itself, that we create environments where everyone feels they belong, that they are valued. I like the concept of that. So, yeah, lots of successes. And I think that's why I'm so jazzed about it. So in a one-on-one situation, you know, success is because I'm able to navigate that and not get hooked most of the time. But in organizational settings, two things come to mind. About 20 years ago, I co-created a program called Dallas Dinner Table, And we have and there are similar programs around the country, if not around the world. But in this particular one, we gather people in groups of eight to 10 all over the metropolitan area on the same night, having conversations in groups that have been assigned to each other that are multi-ethnic, multi-generational It has been fascinating because it's facilitated and guided to have conversations with people and have people come away saying, you know, OMG, I had no idea. Or, wow, I've met three people who are going to be friends who I never would have met because our circles are different, our races are different, our ages are different. So that really comes to mind that it's possible and it's meaningful for people. And of course, the people who sign up to do it are looking to have a conversation. And the other example that jumped to mind immediately was in a corporate setting, and it was specifically a dialogue about race and racism and race relations because they were in that company having some challenges. And this was about eight years ago, seven or eight years ago. And uh, I was able to work with them for a day with a specific group of people who were then going to be champions and facilitating conversations within the organization. And uh, six months later, they had really transformed the environment and people were no longer afraid to talk about race. They were willing to own their own story and experience and realize that their experience was not the same as everyone else's. So they there were fewer assumptions being made. And the fear factor, there's a huge fear factor about talking about this subject because people don't want to say the wrong thing. Yeah. So those are just a couple of examples that came to mind immediately.
4: How about you, Howard?
6: Yeah, well, I would say hundreds. I mean, hundreds of conversations that have, I think, led to positive results. You know, this is what we do on a regular basis. And, and I do think that I think with the, the last point that Tracy made is the most important one, which is that people are afraid of this conversation. And we don't I remember when Eric Holder said, you know, a number of years ago, he said, Americans are just afraid of talking, we're cowards when it comes to talking about race. And I I think that that's true. And I think that that, that there's some responsibility for that on both sides of the conversation, both people who are diversity advocates and also people who are resistant to diversity put up barriers of our own to really having open and honest conversation. On the part of people who are resistant, of course, there's the notion that if I don't see the impact of race... If it doesn't affect me, then it must not be there or it must be it must be overly generated or it must be race baiting or these other kinds of things. Because if I see it, it must not exist. And I think we know better than most of us that we just take a moment and a rational moment. We know that if you're in a non-dominant group, you're going to see the effects of that identity more than if you're in a dominant group. As a white man, for example, I don't have to pay a lot of attention to race if I don't want to, other than to keep myself out of trouble. But a person of color can't live in this country without being very aware of race, or most people of color, on an ongoing basis to know where the traps are, where the, where the trap doors are that I might fall through, or the rocks that I might stumble over, or the person who's out to get me. I think from the other side, sometimes as diversity advocates, we come across as blaming and shaming people and beating up on them when they're really in a lot of cases truly are ignorant about their behavior and ignorant even about some of their belief systems and so we put them on the defensive and expect them to change more quickly than it's reasonable to expect a human being to change. And as a result, the whole conversation of diversity is perceived as an attack on them and they get defensive and protective. And and so I think from both sides, we have to have a deeper appreciation of how challenging it is for us to talk about these issues and and find constructive models, like like some of the ones that Tracy was just talking about, like the community model she was just talking about, you know, constructive models like that to to help build relationships, which then the conversations can occur in, because difficult relationships only occur occur when people have trust
4: yeah you know i think that you're right and i think what you're saying is is really important i mean you bring up several several points one is that people sometimes people are afraid so then the question is why are they afraid but the other thing is that when you have that do people change by shaming and blaming Mm -hmm. so why are people afraid
6: I think uh, I'll jump in first this time. I mean, I think that we're afraid because we see the ramifications of how the conversation can go wrong. Um, we see that if we if we're of color for example that the source of the conversation, our reaction to the conversation can then be used to victimize us even more oh you're one of those people you're one of those race people or what was it? when we were growing up trace they called it uppity right but now, <laughs> you have new language now but you know but you' you know all of a sudden you get associated with that and if people if people have a strong conversation about that that could be used to hurt you either in a, either in a social setting or in a business setting. So I think that the, the fear is understanding Mandible. And I forget, what was the second part of the question, Sima? You, you asked about the fear and, and then...
4: Shame and blame. Does that-
6: Oh yeah, shame and blame. Yeah. And, and blame. look, we know that guilt and shame are not constructive motivators of human behavior. I mean, this is a lot of the work that Brene Brown is talking about, of course. What shame and guilt do is they cause us to they cause us to contract. I mean, anybody who's listening, if you think of somebody in your life who makes you feel guilty, do you want to be around them more or less? I mean, for most of us, it's less. There's a difference between guilt and shame versus responsibility. We want people to take responsibility for their behavior. So when we say don't shame or, or guilt them into something, it's not to say don't hold people accountable. It's just say focus on responsibility. Not so much you're a terrible person because you believe this, but more what are you going to do to move this conversation forward in a positive direction? And that gives people something to do with their energy around it. Now, I'm not talking, of course, about the David Dukes or Richard Spencers of the world. We're never going to reach those folks, and so we've got to keep them limited. But I'm talking I'm talking about the larger percentage of people who don't even realize how much of their decision-making is given by unconscious patterns and the attitudes that they have about people who are different from them.
4: So what do you think, Chase?
5: I don't know that I have anything to add about the blame and shame. I think we all know that even if we had family members who used that on us when we were children or young, that for long-term shifts, real transformation, that's not the way to go. So a phrase that I have used a lot over the last couple of decades in organizations and trying to help people understand they they don't want to always be the enforcer. Right. That, oh, if I'm a champion for diversity, then I need to catch everybody who does anything wrong and shine a spotlight on them. And so the question I often will ask is, do you want to be a diversity cop or do you want to be a diversity coach? That's a great question. And then I I will help them understand that there are times when you need to speak directly directly and enforce a policy. But really, those are the exceptions. Those are the exceptions. It's very few times when someone, as Howard just said, is intentionally you know, creating a hostile or unsafe environment. And so in that case, every time something happens, I have an opportunity to coach you about a better way to look at that or give you more information that might help you navigate that situation or work with that person differently. So that question, uh, well, what's your intention? Is your intention to be a diversity cop or a diversity coach? It often will make people at least slow down enough to think, how would I do this? What would I say? What system would I set up? If I wanted to coach people into self-responsibility for change and transformation compared to what behavior or what system would I set up if what I really wanted to do was collect, make a collection of everything that anyone could do wrong and highlight that.
6: Yeah, you know, Tracy, I I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, the way I sometimes say it, even as facilitators, even as people who are leading these conversations, I think we have to distinguish at times between the role of advocate versus the role of change agent. You know, as an advocate, you know, I might march in the Black Lives Matter movement or in the March for Our Lives or in the Women's March. You know, I'm an advocate when I'm doing there. And I have very strong points of view politically, which I post in social media or I write about at different times. But when I'm facilitating a group in a room, I have a different role. It's not my job to be the advocate because if I'm the advocate in the room, I'm taking sides already. I'm inside of the system and it makes it very hard for me to help the system heal itself. So my job in the room as a facilitator is to honor all of the conversations in the room and to remove my personal beliefs, or not remove it, but put it to the side and be able to hold space so that other people can really have honest conversations. And I think, like in any other case, if anybody is doing any kind of a mediation, for example, if you were if you were at odds with your spouse and you know you were going into a mediation session and the person who was mediating was your spouse's best friend, you wouldn't feel comfortable that you were safe to have the conversation. As you know, you wouldn't likely feel comfortable. So I think that this is one of the the challenges that we face is being able to compartmentalize some of our views and, and and express them at the appropriate time.
4: Wow. You both, what the two of you said is very profound for me and really impacts me because I really like, do you want to be a diversity cop or a diversity coach?
6: Yeah, me too. <laughs>
4: that is so great. And then Howard, I like the way that you talked about the difference because for me, that was a little bit It drove me a little bit like sometimes a little bit nuts thinking about, okay, I've got my corporate self where I am more more neutral in terms of how I talk to people. But then there's that social justice part of me, especially these days where I'm very opinionated, where I really want to see change and I'm working for change. And sometimes for me, it was like, well, who am I? How does this all work? And I really like, you just made me feel a lot more comfortable with myself.
7: <laughs> oh,
6: good. I to and I, I it's one of my missions in life. That's good.
4: Well, no, <laughs> really, you just, just helped me, like, clarify.
6: All right.
7: <laughs>
4: well, we're, we're seeing a lot of people getting fired these days. At what point should someone be fired, and at what point should they be educated? So could you comment on that? And how do we educate people?
6: Well, you mean, obviously, we've seen the example this past week of Megyn Kelly. And, you know, and, and we know there are lots of other people around. I mean, you know, I mean, I have to say, I guess to preface my comments to say that I am a fierce proponent of free speech. I, you know, part of it is that in my life experience of being a social justice warrior for now, over 50 years most of the time when free, free speech is is uh, suppressed it's it's people who are looking for change in society who are suppressing it and so I mean who are being suppressed and so that usually is people from the liberal and progressive side so just for for plain self-interest I try to tell people if you suppress their free speech you make it easier for them to suppress our free speech you know for me for me the it, it's hard to determine sometimes but the real criteria there are two real criteria one is, What's the discernible intent? In other words, is this a mean-spirited comment or a callous comment, something where people are clearly not, don't care or are demonstrating lack of interest in the, the well-being or the rights of certain people versus somebody who's ignorant, versus somebody who says something without even realizing how offensive it is? And then the second is, that, is this something that this person has demonstrated over time or is it something that's kind of an individual circumstance? So Deming, I, you know, I get a chance to, to study with Edwards Deming when he was in his 90s, great quality guru. And he used to create the distinction between special case and common case circumstances. And he used to say, for example, that, you know, you have a special case circumstance is one where if something happens, it's an anomaly to the system. So, you know, let's take the Starbucks example. You know, the incident that happened at Starbucks, it's you know, terrible incident that happened at the Philadelphia store, but it does not appear that, it's, that the Starbucks system is designed to produce that result. And no system of quarter of a million people can be completely immune from individual people making a mistake. It's just not realistic. Versus a, a common case circumstance is when A system is regularly producing or is designed to produce a particular behavior. So if you look at Megyn Kelly, for example, I would say, you know, here you have somebody who's made these gaps numerous times in the past. You know, she did the thing with the black Santa Claus and it was the black Jesus. And then there's this and there are four or five other examples. You know, you put her on TV in the morning. It's it's it was only a matter of time before she do another one, because she demonstrated so many times in the past that she'd done this. So so for me, the shame is not on her as much as it's on them. What did they expect? You know, they took a big name person because they thought it would draw it would draw attention. and, And you get what you get with her as opposed to, for example, if you remember the thing that happened with. Oh, my goodness. What's his name? Juan Williams. When he was on NPR and he made the comment, he made the comment, you know, I have to acknowledge that when I'm on an airplane, and mind you, this was in 2003, maybe, or something like that, no, or right
1: 2002.
6: Yeah, it was right after 9-11. He said, I have to acknowledge that when I see somebody get on the plane and they're wearing Muslim clothing, it, I get a little frightened. You know. And, and now
4: he said, "I know I shouldn't too."
6: I know I shouldn't exactly. Now, now for me, that seemed like a ridiculous thing to fire him for. It felt it felt to me like that could have been much more used as an opportunity to open up dialogue because he was speaking something the half of America was feeling at that time, right or wrong. And to fire somebody, that that's where I think we get into the excessive political correctness and and you know watching people's speech becoming the speech police and that I, can really shut down dialogue in our society.
4: Yeah, I was really with npr after that tracy how about you
5: i couldn't agree more there is a line so when i work with organizations and they say we're going to have there is a line so when i work with organizations and they say we're going to have or we all have or we intend to have a zero tolerance policy i always say oh wait 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 okay so what does that mean to you and <laughs> then i try to give them some examples to let them know that the intent they want which is to really clearly make employees or members of the organization understand that the values of the organization are for respect and for you know creating a safe environment and all of that and zero tolerance as a phrase isn't appropriate because then you take away your opportunity to discern what is the appropriate action here either that or you follow your zero tolerance policy and then you end up having to terminate people for things that would be best handled a different way so but i i don't think some of that is just a distinction between terminating them removing them or educating I think there's different levels of educating. So do you educate that individual? Or there are times when you need to educate the entire workforce or the entire group. But I also see a lot of the times when people are terminated, I find myself saying, oh, I wish they hadn't fired that person because now there's no way to hold them accountable for changing their behavior. Because especially with celebrities or high-level executives in corporations, because of their experience and or their celebrity, somebody else is going to scoop them up and pay them a lot of money. And if they had stayed where they made the mistake or caused the problem, that organization could hold them accountable for shifting their beliefs, changing, or at least changing their behaviors, even if their beliefs don't change, and force them to behave differently and understand why that's not acceptable, whatever it is they did or said. And so for me, the big question always becomes about the accountability for improved behavior down the line.
6: I think that's really valuable. I think it's a really valuable distinction. I think that you know the question is: Are we complaining about a problem, or are we moving to solutions? And I think, with Tracy, I couldn't under, I couldn't agree more, Tracy.
4: Yeah, I, I completely agree. It becomes kind of like a game of whack-a-mole.
6: You know, yes, fires yes.
4: somebody, then somebody else comes up, and I think that sometimes some of these people, and a lot of them, tend to be white, but not always. Really, that maybe it makes them feel good. Okay, yeah, we got rid of that person, but how is that helping the situation? How is that Create,
6: how is that creating change? Yeah, So If I could, yeah, I think if I could just add one thing about this. I think I think that that this is really important, not only thinking about it from an organizational standpoint, but even a societal standpoint. You know, is that we're so complaint oriented and and so not solution oriented in the way we approach some of these things, and that contributes to the problem.
4: So I want to ask, I guess Tracy, why to get something. So Howard, mm-hmm. ask you this. As, as a white person, as a Jewish person, as, as a man, what have you been your challenges in terms of having conversations about race? Because I know, all three of us are perfect now, but we weren't always perfect, Okay.
6: Well, you know, I don't. I never claim that. I'm, I'm really clear. One, I think one of the one of the things that I I found is most important is to is to share my own blind spots with people. You know, and they come up regularly. You know, I just recently I was I was out at the Forum for Workplace Inclusion last spring uh, in uh, Minneapolis, and with my wife Leslie, and I was also my business partner and and one of our colleagues, Cook Ross. And uh, we were coming back. We flew back to DCA, to Washington National Airport, and we kind of come up the aisle to the main hallway and walk out in the main hallway. And they're standing right in front of me, 20 feet in front of me, is Martin Luther King III, Dr. King's son. And I, I had sort of a fanboy moment, I have to admit. And, and so I went over to him and, and, you know, he couldn't have been more gracious. And I thanked him, as I'm sure millions have, for his the role that his father played in my life and for the great work that he's done in carrying the torch. And. And uh, he, he, you know, agreed to take a picture with us. He, he was with his wife and another younger woman. And we took a picture. And we went home. And the next day, somebody was over our house. I said, yeah, we met, you know, Martin Luther King III and his wife and his assistant. And, and Leslie says to me, she wasn't his assistant. She was his chief of staff. And, and I had to stop and say to myself, if that was a man would I have assumed that it was his assistant or might I have thought maybe it was his lawyer or something else? Now I don't know whether that's true or not, but I suspect it probably the gender in that case did impact me. And I could find other examples where I made assumptions about race or that were influenced by race. I'm sure each of you can as well. I think that we have to acknowledge that and be willing to. And I think when we do that, it makes it much easier for us to have conversations with other people because we're acknowledging our own blind spots. I mean, I've never had an issue as a white man doing the work because from the, beginning of my life, you know, coming from a family of Holocaust victims, it was very clear to me that creating a sense of healthy diversity in the world and creating safety for people who are different is very real. It's not some imagined phenomenon in my life. It's something that killed my my ancestors. And so for me, the notion that this is only for you know, people of color is an absurd notion because we all have to live in this world together. We have to create a world of inclusion for everybody. And now it's even exacerbated by the fact that I've got the four of my six grandchildren are of mixed race. So, so I don't have any issue with that. Some people do, you know, some people wonder why a white guy would be doing this. And, and even in the inclusion community, sometimes I don't feel a full sense of belonging because there's some people who, you know, who still kind of relate to me as the white guy. And, wow. you know, I've dealt with people who were jealous of the fact that I was successful and how come the white guy is successful, you know, all this kind of stuff. But, you know, frankly, that's not what I determined my behavior on. I determined my behavior on what my heart tells me I need to be working on and what my mission is in the world, and people will react the way they react.
4: Well, Howard, <laughs> thank you so much for sharing that. See, I had no idea that you ever felt like you didn't belong. So thank you.
6: Right.
4: Tracy, how about you? I was asking about what have been, what have been your challenges Uh, and having these conversations as a black woman? Well, I
5: started having these conversations at the age of four. So at least at at a level that I could remember. And so-
6: Facilitating your preschool, were you, Tracy? (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The
5: advantage of being a part of a black family that had been, that was in a previously predominantly white or previously all white neighborhood. So even with that, yeah, there are still lots of times along the, the way that I've put my foot in my mouth or I've been uncomfortable or I realized afterwards I wasn't as sensitive to how I might be coming across. But what jumps to mind in this moment is that one of the most powerful insights and ahas that I had around my own ignorance was that I don't know, this is you know, probably almost forty years ago, but when I really got it that white people didn't think about race all the time, the way that black people did and had to in order to yeah. survive. and that literally many of the things that were done or words that were spoken that were offensive or insensitive or inappropriate, that, that really white people had no clue that they were being insensitive or inappropriate. And it blew my mind. I mean, literally, it took me about a year to fully grasp what that meant. And it shifted me to be able to be more of an educator than an enforcer. But even though that was 30 plus years ago when I really finally got it, it still surprises me. And even this year, I've had example after example that reminds me of this. Let me give you the example and then I'll tell you how I'm reminded that I could say the wrong thing easily. Mm -hmm. So I wore my hair in locks for 12 years. And my locks were long and I was used to people being curious about that. And people for the most part have been appropriately curious and have questions. And that's great. Six months ago, I cut my locks off. And so I'm wearing my hair very, very, very short, close to my head, very little hair. And I even saying this out loud, I can feel like I am at how many white people come up to me and put their hands in my head, on my head, affectionately. Oh, your head, you know, I'm like, and every time it makes me cringe. Even people who I, I know that they are on their journey, I know that there are many of them who are advocates about race or sexual orientation or interfaith. And that they would not know how offensive it would be to touch my hair or my head, as you know, and not ask question, just go to touch. And so there have been a couple of times when I have blurted out, oh, no, you didn't touch my hair <laughs> with <laughs> a little bit of attitude. And then seeing their reaction going, oh, they don't know that that really is inappropriate. Or I've had to just close my eyes and take a deep breath and count to 10 so I could come back and say, you may not be aware that you, we've got a good relationship and I know your intention is good, but putting your hands in on the head or in the hair of a black woman is really something you don't wanna do ever again to anyone. <laughs> yeah. So the conversations come up at the most unexpected time. And that's what I'm reminded of, that I won't always respond the way that I'd love to respond as an expert on diversity and inclusion. When it's me personally or when it's an issue or concern that I have a heart connection to.
4: Yeah, you know, and I think, you know, for me, you know, I think that, like I asked you both, what, what was your challenges? For me, sometimes it's, I would rather talk to somebody who really doesn't know than somebody who thinks that they know. Because I'm talking to a white person that really doesn't know. I'm going to have a conversation. I'm going to find some connection. They're not going to tell me how, oh, I went out with a black guy, so therefore I'm not racist or whatever, you know, whatever. people. Kind of, And it's easier for me. But the other thing, too, as as a white person who's also Jewish, there's another challenge because there's also – and I tell people when they go, well, you know, I'm Jewish and I understand depression. I said, no, you understand your oppression, but maybe you don't over understand or you understand your discrimination. And at the same time, I said, let's put it this way. Who could get a cab at night in New York? You know, you or – a black person. So, you know, I have to point out, so so sometimes that's a challenge, because you have to acknowledge, I think it's really important to acknowledge other people's issues around discrimination and what they've been through. And at the same time, for me, say, okay, and then look at this also.
6: Yeah. I mean, I I think that, you know, look, I I think you know, Tracy's point and the point that you're making about people not being able to understand the lived experience of others is, is I think at the core of this, you know, Tracy, when you were talking about, you know, people just not getting what it's like, I, you know, I've had conversations a number of times recently with people about entitlement and white privilege. And, you know, when people hear those terms, they hear hear about white entitlement or white privilege, or in some cases, white male privilege. You know, they think what it means you're a bad person because you have privilege. They don't get the systemic aspect of it. But from a systemic standpoint, I'll often have the conversation. I'll say to people, you know, I've got four sons. The youngest of whom is 24 years old. They all got their driver's licenses. And I never once had to have a single moment of thought to have a conversation with them about driving while white. And what to do if a police officer stopped you, and how race might play a role in how you're treated by that police officer. And yet, virtually every African American friend I have who has children of that age have had that conversation. And it's such a prevalent conversation in the black community that the NAACP actually produces a booklet, How to Talk to Your pa- Kids About Driving While Black. That's privilege. The fact that I didn't have that conversation is privilege. And the fact that I don't realize that black Parents have to have that conversation and that every time their child goes out at night, they worry about things like that, where I still worry about, you know, especially when they were just starting to drive, worry about them getting into accidents or something like that. But I never had to worry about them getting killed by a police officer because they were white or Jewish in my in our particular case. And so I, I do think that it's those deeper levels of conversation and, and being able to understand the lived experience of each other that are so important here. But I also don't want us to leave the impression in this conversation that that's singularly something that white people have to pay attention to. Because I think when you bring up, Sima, the different attitude that folks might have around anti-Semitism or that or that Latinos have about race versus the way African Americans feel about race, or that Asians have about race rather than the way Latinos and African Americans and white people feel about race. We all need to do a better job of understanding each other. This past weekend, after the synagogue shooting, I had a number of conversations with people about the subtle, the subtle way that that anti-Semitism contributes to being an outsider in the society, even while Jews are financially more successful, have lots of opportunities in the academy and all these kinds of things, that there still is on a very subtle level, but nonetheless very real, this sense of, you know, who am I dealing with that gets exacerbated when things happen like what happened this weekend? Yeah. And that is you're reminded that that you're still as a white person in this society as a white jewish person in this society have one foot on the station and one foot on the train
4: yeah and if you're a bl- and a and, you know and if you're a black jewish person then that's
6: well, a whole other dynamic
4: a lot of issues because there's a lot of you know there's a lot of jews of color that have to deal with a lot of those issues on so many different yeah. levels well,
5: tracy yeah, yeah. And the thing that I was going to add, and it's funny, how our energy is kind of in the same place. I was thinking about the one thing that hasn't come up in our responses, and it is a challenge for me on, around this. On my, I, I moderate a Facebook group called What is Mine to Do, and it's what is mine to do to eliminate or reduce race-based hatred and violence. And I am constantly challenging myself to look beyond black and white and to bring in the experience of every racial and ethnic group in our world. And how do we need to, what can we learn? What can I learn that will help me understand better the experience that someone who is a person of color, but they're not black. They're, you know, from a different group because I don't, there's a lot I don't know. And so how do I model for everyone who participates in the page, really looking out for information and education and being responsive when different things happen in our world that could have an impact or have have a negative impact, ex- especially, and sharing the history, they're very powerful and rich history of other racial and ethnic groups that often get overlooked because we talk about race and we you know gravitate to the black white continuum. Well,
4: and two questions. One is why is that? And what and I'm going to assume that both of you have a lot of people in your life from a lot of different cultures, not just black and not white, right? Right. And Mm -hmm. so what kind of so do you also have those kind of conversations with those people, too?
5: Well, yes. And the why is that is easy. The why is that is because the black white conflict, the black white continuum, the black white, you know, quote unquote issue has been the most prevalent and in some ways historically in the United States, at least, has laid a foundation economic, psychological, social, has laid such a foundation about how we treat race and what we believe about race. And so, and it's also the conversation that has been historically most often avoided. So that's the why, I mean, that's what we gravitate toward. But we live in a society, I live in a state that is majority people of color. And there are other states like that. And so, you know, black folks are not the only people of color. And many, many, many more quote-unquote white people are recognizing that they're not pure white. (laughs) They live a life under the the social structure of being quote-unquote white. But with all of the rushed for people to get their ans- their DNA to find their ancestry over the last few years, people are more and more surprised at how mixed they are and that they, they have African blood in their ancestry. So this conversation makes sense, but we- it's not the only yeah. one.
6: Yeah, I mean, I, I would I would agree with you completely, and, and I think that the other thing is that if we if we look at it, you know, really, it's only in the last couple of generations that the percentage of Latinos and Asians has risen to the numbers that's risen because those are the two fastest growing populations that we have among racial groups. And when I was growing up, the conversation was really about white people and black people, and it has been for most of our country's history. And so, as a result of that, you know, we've got these new dimensions. Now, one of the one of the challenges that happens as a result of that is because we cut our teeth. On on conversations about race between white people and black people, we often make the mistake of applying the same lens to the dynamics, let's say the Hispanics or Latinos deal with or that Asians deal with, and, it, and they're different. There's a different quality to it. There's a different quality having been immigrants versus being brought here as slaves. There's a different quality because of the success that, that's that been allowed to happen in those communities rather than other communities. The fact that, for example, that so many Asians came here as immigrants, in some cases coming from very high positions in the societies that they left, or, or um, you know, for example, all the Vietnamese immigrants who came here, who came from people who were government leaders or professionals who, who left as a result of, of us losing that war, came in at a very different place than people who were brought here in chains and were denied education and were denied opportunity and even denied to allowed to read for generation after generation before they weren't. And so, and so as a result of that, the gap between white performance and black performance in this society is by far the largest gap of, of all the racial gaps. And therefore, it makes sense that that would be the thing that would occupy most of our attention. You
4: know, I just had somebody somebody has been on my show a couple of times, and actually he's going to co-host with me sometimes. His name is Patrick Tindana. He's from Ghana. And He talks about the difference of, he's 35, he's also gay, and he had to leave Ghana because he's gay, and he talked about, though, coming to the United States, and he said that there's no way that he could, I mean, he has to deal with racism, but he said there's no way that he could really understand the trauma that African American people have been here, been through in the United States, having all these, like, generations of of slavery and generations of dealing with the kind of racism that that they've had to deal with since in Ghana. He said, you know, most everybody's black.
6: Right. Yeah. I have a friend. I have a good friend who, who comes from Ghana actually. And he, he talks about this all the time. And John is coal black. I mean, very, very dark skinned man came to this country as a student, but his father was seven generations descended from tribal royalty and is now a government and business leader. And he said he grew up as a prince. You know, he didn't grow up as somebody who was lacking anything. He grew up in the aristocracy in his country and then came to this country. And so so whatever racism he deals with doesn't hit the inside. It doesn't it, he doesn't suffer from post-traumatic slave syndrome, as Joy DeGruy calls it, or or some of these internalized patterns of bias. And I've noticed over the years that I've, I've known him for many years, the way he deals with racism is quite different. It's like, you know, fool. I mean, it's a he doesn't it, it doesn't get internalized. I mean, he might get angry about it, but he ne- it never gets internalized. He just thinks people who treat who are racist are idiots. And because he comes from a place where black people occupied the highest levels of government, the highest levels of business, the highest levels of science, the highest levels of the academy, and I think that's very different to somebody who grows up in the United States, where you're always the other, where you're always less than, where you don't see people like yourself very often in senior leadership roles, and you begin to and be, people understandably begin to internalize some of that bias and start to think maybe there's something, not even think, but it's more of feeling, an unconscious feeling, there's something insufficient about me for who I am.
4: You know, when when I was on Michelle's show, you were at at the studio when I was at, when we recorded coffee, she's now at CBS, so she's doing really well, but we had a, I did a show on Asians in the race convo. It was a really great conversation. I'm going to do it again on, on this show. I think it really is important to be able to hear other people's experiences because some people don't realize that everybody's experience is different and that different cultures, that people experience racism and some of it is the same, but then some of it is also different.
5: Well, and we know that we have the intersectioning. So even with within a given ethnic or racial identity group, there are some commonalities and some things to expect, but there are a lot of things that'll be different based on the overlay or the intersection of sexual orientation, especially the intersection of socioeconomic experience and status, you know, age, of course, because a lot of folks who are in their twenties, my goddaughter is twenty-three and you know, the group of of young adults that she grew up with you know, they've had a very, very different experience than the folks in my generation based on race and so it's so complex. That's part of what makes it difficult, but for me, that's part of what makes it so fascinating. Mm-hmm.
4: I could talk about this forever and I know I want to have you two back on because now this is, I have this show and it have like, a lot of repeat guests.
8: <laughs> but
4: I think that it's important to address, at least to touch on it, because it's, it's so deep, about what's been happening the last couple of weeks. That first, I mean, things are always happening. I mean, well, people call always, you know, it's kind of like this constant thing about getting the police called for, like, drinking water or, or breathing. But also the fact that, like, at Kroger's uh, last week, two black people were killed because they were black. Then we have all the bombings. I mean attempted bombings and then we have the massacre at the synagogue so i want to know what are your thoughts on that and also what can we do so that we could start so we can work towards eliminating this kind of hatred
6: well wow what are my thoughts about that i mean it was a horrific weekend obviously for all of us and i think that you know i think that there's a collective shock Throughout the country and how to deal with this and it was also so sad to see how we immediately people immediately got into their you know defensiveness about the obvious which is that the language of our the language of of our politics has gotten to the point where it's beyond it's one thing to it's one you know i just i just posted a blog about this and, and it's one thing to say go protest it's one thing to say you know be confronting or whatever else it's something else entirely to say punch the guy You know, stomp on him to extol the virtues of body slamming reporters. And I think we have a real challenge right now in that the greatest proponent of hate speak in our society is the President of the United States, and he justifies this behavior. I'm not suggesting that he wanted people to do this or he told people to do this, but when you have unbalanced people out there who can go into their Walmart and buy an AK 47, and you hear the President of the United States giving justification for violent behavior, it makes it one step closer for us to have this happen. So I think we have to, obviously, we all have to. To tone down our rhetoric, but particularly the person who's got the loudest voice in our society needs to show some leadership and to, and to recognize that these kinds of things are, are unacceptable and, and to, to come out just three days after or two days after the CNN received pipe bombs and again be talking about the press as the enemy of the people. That's different then that's different than I disagree with them I don't think they're reporting fairly I don't like their bias. There are all kinds of ways you can say what he's trying to say but that's not what he's trying to do. The bottom line is that Donald Trump's entire political career is built on building fear and loathing between people. That's what he that's what he saw was there that's what that's the tsunami wave he decided to ride and that's where he falls back every time after he reads his prepared statements. crazy.
5: What I think, what my thoughts have been, similar to what my thoughts often are when we have multiple events, because I know this is happening, these kinds of things are happening every day somewhere. We just only hear about the really big ones, right? And so there is a part of my thinking process that, you know, is I'm tired, right? The the fatigue of being hit over and over and over. But the biggest, most commanding thought is that we as a society, we as a society are being given an opportunity. So I go back to this, this kind of the spiritual foundation of life itself and really see it as a choice. As a society, as a nation, are we going to choose evil and hatred and death and anger, are we going to say, okay, we finally have had enough and we are going to live our lives and build a country where all of this diversity is accepted as a part of who we are and we can do that in unity and harmony and move toward a greater good. So my thoughts, you know, kind of go from that one extreme of, oh, here we go again, to it's a call for responsibility. It's a call for prayer. It's a call for action toward what we want instead of against what we think is wrong, which just generates more of that. And I and the how do we do it? I think it does call for people of what I think of as having the spiritual imperative for unity and harmony. It calls for us to really say, okay, this isn't enough. We have to do whatever we have to do that comes from a place of building love and respect, not duplicating. The anger, the disrespect, and the death, the killing. Other than that, and the big picture, you know, I don't know what the specifics are. We vote for leaders as Howard just described, you know, are we going to hold our leaders accountable are we going to hold Congress accountable? Are we going to hold the Supreme Court? Well, they're appointed. We don't elect them. But are we going to hold the people we elect accountable for leading from a different place of collaboration, of communication, of connection, of represent true representation of the majority of people? Or are we going to continue to elect people? Or in our organizations, are we going to continue to reward leaders who are divisive and who are judgmental and who push competition more than collaboration or not
6: yeah look i think i think that the one thing that's really important for us to recognize is that this didn't just sort of organically develop this nastification of american politics did not just naturally organically develop this was a defined strategy i mean and, you know, in 1978, Newt Gingrich burst upon the scene as a, as a professor, That when as a college professor, telling a gathering of young Republicans, one of the great problems we have in the Republican Party is that we don't encourage you to be nasty. We encourage you to be neat, obedient, loyal and faithful to all those Boy Scout words, which are great around the campfire, but are lousy in politics. And then in 1990, when he became majority whip. He actually had his PAC send out a list of words to use to describe Democrats to demonize them. Decay, failure, collapse, deeper, urgent, destructive, destroy, pathetic, liars, liberals, unionizing, you know. And so this was a very conscious strategy on the part of the Gingrich-led Republican Party to put nastiness into American politics because they were smart enough to know that people don't vote rationally. We vote viscerally. And if you can make people, if you can demonize the enemy and make yourself look strong by demonizing the enemy, then people will gravitate towards you. Now, that, that puts people on the other side in a very interesting position because if we do as Michelle Obama said, which is to, you know, when they go low, we go high. It doesn't stop them from doing what they're doing, and what they're doing actually does trigger those old brain responses. So, so finding the the way to hold on to our own moral footing while at the same time dealing with that is a real significant challenge, and it's one that we're going to have to take on in a much more sophisticated way than we have.
4: Wow, this has been such an amazing conversation, and I love talking to the two of you. And this is, you know, I guess the only way I can have long conversations with both of you is to just have you back on the show. Fair enough. 'Cause I know I know how busy everybody is. And I wanna ask both of you if it's one thing that one point that you want to make that you wanna share with people and also how do people reach you? How do people get in contact with you?
6: Okay, Tracy. okay
4: so Tracy, you go you go first. How do people get in contact with you? One point, how do people get in contact with you? And if you have any books you want people to buy.
5: Easiest way for people to get in touch with me or to find out more is to go to tracybrown.com, and that's T-R-A-C-Y brown.com. No E's, no I's. And you can also find out about books and programs there. The one point that I would want to close with and make sure it got stated is that each one of us is a valuable contribution to shift, to change, and to transformation in the world. And I just want everybody to step into that in their own lives, and the ripple effect will change the, our collective lives.
4: Thanks.
6: Great, Howard. Yeah, for me, I think that the easiest way to reach me right now is at Howard at udarta u d a r t a dot com or Howard at Howard dot Ross at cookross dot com. Either way, um, I think I would say two things. I think the first is. You know i know that i felt this weekend probably a greatest sense of hopelessness and helplessness than i felt in a long time and there's a part of me at times like that and i'm sure that there's a part of our many of our listeners who feel like i'm just sick and tired of politics i want to put it away and and just ignore it but i realized you know when i even have that thought that that's an act of privilege that walking away from politics is an act of privilege walking away from being a participant in our democracy is an act of privilege because there are people who don't have the accessibility to influence people. There are people who don't have the accessibility to get the message out there who are more deeply affected by what's going on in our society today, people of low income, people of marginalized groups, whether that's racially marginalized or LGBTQ people or women. You know, we didn't even get a chance to talk about the whole misogynistic aspect of society today. And so I think we have to engage, but at the same time we have to take care of ourselves. And then the second thing is vote. You know, we have this election coming up next week and it's shocking how few Americans vote. We have to get out and vote. We have to use the mechanism that we have in front of us, even with all the challenges we have with voter suppression and all of that kind of stuff. We still have to vote.
4: Yeah. People don't realize, too, that sometimes like voting impacts just minimum wage, rank. That's right. Climate. So many different things. This has been such a great show. Everybody, you've been listening to Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist with Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People. If you like what you heard today, then please go to www.raceconvo, combo like conversation, raceconvo.com, and listen to more episodes. If you really, really like what you heard today, then please share this show and share my link and share the show with all of your friends, colleagues, and anybody you ever met in the whole wide world. And if you really, really, really like our show and you want to see us continue because we run the show on donations, please go to www.raceconvo and make a small donation. No donation is too small. Large donations are cool too, but the and you could hit me up at Simma at SimmaLieberman.com or on Twitter at the Inclusionist. Thank you so much. And until next time, Simma The Inclusionist, everyday conversations on race for everyday people, sign up. All
3: right, so two bucks. Or more if you feel super super generous. No, wait till you get on stage. Twenty bucks? Yeah, we have twenty dollars. What's your name? Jay, are you going up? Can
9: I please?
3: Yeah, no, I'm gonna say absolutely. Thank you so much. You know what I mean? Maybe maybe you get like eight minutes. Maybe. I'm really bad at winking, so it's like uh uh uh, uh. All right, cool. All right, everybody's doing good? How's everybody doing? Good? Let's give it up for your waitstaff. I don't know. (laughs) I'm sorry. Yeah, let's give it up for the doorman. All right, good. It's good to hear. It's good to hear. Uh, I, (laughs) it's so funny. I, um, I, you know, No, this is great. I'm so glad you guys are all here. This is awesome. You guys are all fairly new comics? New comics? I'll do a little crowd work. A little little crowd work. New? Are you fairly new? Not really, Not really? a little bit. Yeah. Like old. Yeah. Like like oldish. Kind of oldish. Kinda old-ish? Yeah. All right. All right. That's cool. I'm kind of n- newish oldish too. I am. <laughs> I am. I'm newish oldest I, um, I used to live in the city actually I, used to, I don't live in the city anymore cuz I can't afford it I live in East Bay now but uh, when I lived in the do you, you oh, yeah it looked like you were raising your hand do you want to bid on something no we put we have $20 so far you want to bid on something no <laughs> we're selling hope we're selling hope dear we're selling hope here I, uh, I used to, no, I used to work in the city. I used to work at a sex shop for a while, which was um, kind of awesome, actually. Uh, I did have to get used to saying the word cock ring, like 2,000 times a day. Yeah, and it, this is the thing, like at first I was really nervous about it, so I used to like whisper it. It'd be like, a, yeah, I'd be like, a, so what size cock ring do you need? The guys would, I know, and the guys would always be like, a, you whispering to me, baby? No. <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know. I did learn a couple things, though. I learned. Um, I learned that if you ask a man, no matter what he looks like, I don't care what he looks like, tall, short, skinny, fat, old, young, I don't care what he looks like, what ethnicity he is. If you ask a man what size cockring he needs, he will always say large. That's right. That's absolutely right and um uh, one and three he'll he'll say, uh you got anything bigger <laughs> right i'm gonna i'm gonna prove it to you right now, um sir, what size ring do you uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know what, what oh, you it's us, uh, oh no no no, that's that's my bad, I'm so sorry that is my bad uh small medium large, those are your options, large. I just proved my point. No, it's, it's, it, but it's true. It's absolutely true. This is the other thing that I'm pretty sure it's true. Uh, I am 100% true that um, there are a lot of guys in San Francisco that's got tape on their cock ring right now to hold it on. That's what I'm 100% true of. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure of that. I'm positive, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> You, we don't have that kind of time. I know it's kind of sad. It's kind of which, which, what? Wait, what's sad? What's sad? The, that you need it? Oh no! I heard it's like fun. I heard it. You know what? Ask Anthony, Anthony after.
9: <laughs>
3: okay. Right? <laughs> you're wearing one. You're wearing one right now, huh? <laughs> I used to, uh, when I lived in the city, I shared, a, I shared a flat with like six people, right, which makes perfect sense, right? Uh, I shared a, um, a room with my boyfriend, and the next door was uh, like pocket doors, and there was a guy on the other side of the pocket doors, and we used to hear everything he fucking did in there, and he was really hot, like Irish guy, and he would bring home a different chick like every night, and this was frequently what I would hear in the middle of the night. This was frequently what I'd hear, i hear, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Shut up. <laughs> going to wake up my roommates. That's it's like the thought was there. But like the execution it just wasn't good. You guys all from the city? Ooh. I don't know. You know what? I just really want to talk to you guys. I'm sorry. I don't want to do material, but I should because I'm a comedian. So let's do this. Um... No, I don't know. <laughs> What'd you say? Sacramento. Sac- you're from Sac? Good, because I thought you said you suck. And I was like, really, bitch? <laughs> oh, you're from Sacramento? You drove all the way over here? For you. Dude. Really? OK, you get nine minutes.
9: Just kidding. You just
3: get nine minutes. You won't know the difference. When you're up here, you don't know the difference. You don't know the difference. It's, um, no, we also used to, what'd you say? Yeah. You're either going to be part of the conversation or you're not going to be part of the conversation. (laughs) These are the two options we have for this. So yeah, we, uh, I used to, we sold porno movies at the porn shop too. We sold porno movies. Anybody like porno movies? You guys like those? Hell yeah. Yeah, Hell yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. I don't like them, though. Yeah, I don't like them, and this is why I don't like them. I don't like them because they are very predictable. <laughs> you notice this? Yeah. Okay, just once. I would love like a really good twist ending. Wouldn't that be great? Right?
6: someone got into the it's That's. <laughs> <laughs> the spoilers right the
3: title.
4: That's that, exactly. That's what
3: you're looking for. <laughs> I I love this. This has become like a group therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> is it? Oh, you know what? That's what happened. Whenever I, uh, whenever I call like my mom, my boyfriend, my best friend, nobody's answering. I'm like, they're so planning an intervention right now. Like when I get home, they're gonna be like, hi, why don't you take a seat? And I'm just like, ah, no, no, no. You know what? I would love it if there was a porno movie that had a really good twist ending. Like I was thinking, what if like M. Night Shyamalan did a porno movie. You know what I mean? Yeah, this is what. No, this is what I was thinking. This is what I was thinking. Okay, I think this is what it'll look like. It'll look like that. Okay. Ah, oh, that was
10: great.
3: Oh my God, he's been dead the whole time. No wonder he's so stiff. I know. I love that tagline, but I usually either get a aw or a huh. And I don't know if that's what I want. I'm not too sure if that's what I want. You know, I kind of want to get this thing started. I know I'm allowed to do like <laughs> as much time as I want, but I'm just going to get her started. And um, let's see. Let me find out who's first on the list. Chris? Chris Hardanson. Oh, Chris Hart. Oh, I heard he's good. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. Hello. Chris. Hardinson
2: Thank you very much if you oh I will tip, I will tip don't worry it's not a tip. it's what you got to pay again, I to say it's just not a tip. If everybody leaves this mic knowing one thing, just remember Chris Hardinson is really good. Chris Hardinson is super good. if you're listening on the radio, write down the name Chris Hardinson, and search him on YouTube. Find some cool shit. Uh, I saw my dick in porn recently. You ever see your dick in porn? You ever recognize it? If you're like me, I change the video instantly. Because when I watch porn, I like to see the girl like super enjoying herself. (laughs) Like to an extent that I cannot provide. You know, like why do you watch professional sports? Because you want to see the best of the best get it done. You know, that's why you're not at home watching fucking high school basketball. You're watching the NBA with the big ass black dicks dunking on each other. Fuck yeah, dude. The big ass dicks in the NBA. It's not part of the stats, but it should be. It'd be like how many points, how many assists, rebounds, how long's the dong? Dude, we need to know. It might help your team. LeBron would still be the best player in the NBA if that was all uh, part of it. You guys remember the finals last year where we saw LeBron's dick? Does anybody else remember that? Anybody else burn that into their memory like I did? That was the dick that I saw that looked like mine. That's what I'm talking about, is that LeBron James dick. I'm like, oh shit, me and LeBron got something in common. If I squint my eyes and turn my head to a little bit, I'm like, yeah, it's the same. Same ass dick as LeBron, baby. Put that on my Tinder bio. You gotta squint your eyes though, so you gotta be Asian or super high. So we'll figure it out, I'll figure it out. (laughs) Asian girls don't like me, but I got a bunch of weed, so it's all good, it's all good, don't worry about it. Uh, I like to, have you ever had your dick sucked with ice in her mouth? Like when uh, when a girl will do that, like with ice in her mouth? I like that, but I just don't like how many ice cubes she can fit in her mouth while she does it. And it's like, (laughs) just starts creating all this water all of a sudden and shit, I was like, oh shit, it's not cool. I subscribe to a Pornhub Premium now. So you're all fucking peasants to me at this point, basically. Because I don't No one else in this room has the fucking cojones to pay $12 a month for premium fucking videos. I'm talking HD. I'm talking the best videos that you can find on the internet. And I pay $12 a month for that shit. And it's a great investment until I see these sad dog commercials where they're like, for $8 a month, you can save all these dogs. And I'm like, nah. But I will spend more than that. So I come faster when I watch porn. I'm learning a lot about myself. I'm learning a lot about myself these days and who I am. I saw a young homeless guy recently. His sign said, first time being homeless. I'm like, dude, that's the attitude that got you homeless. <laughs> If you ever saw me homeless, you'd see me with the fucking guitar and a jar and a sign that says last time being homeless. That's how you'd make the money, man. Fucking optimism. Who's going to give this kid money to fund his life of continuous homelessness? You know, like, oh, this is your first time on your second time being homeless? Are going to write second time being homeless and think anyone gives a shit? No one cares, homeless kid. No one fucking cares. I think there's too many people in the world, you guys. I do. I'm not going to start like shooting people or anything, but I am going to stop covering my coughs and sneezes. (laughs) Fuck yeah. Uh, I saw a billboard for abortion recently well it wasn't for abortion it was anti I don't think you'll ever see like a pro abortion billboard you'll never see like a you got it in you you can take it out you got it in you to take it out of you and if there was a pro one that would be a good tagline for it I would have written it but it was an anti abortion billboard It had a big number on it, it said two million five hundred thousand. that's the number of lives abortion has taken away from us since it was legalized and I thought to myself damn don't you just wish there was two and a half million more unwanted people here? Wouldn't that just make this earth a better place for all of us to live, you know? And this billboard is in the middle of the country, in the middle of nowhere. No one was seeing this shit. They need to put this shit where it's going to get some attention. I'm talking right next to the freeway, like in between Petaluma and Novato. So every morning and every evening, when people are sitting in lane-to-lane traffic, they can just imagine two and a half million more people just merging into their lane, just making them that much later for their fucking jobs. Fuck that shit. Two and a half million more cars merging into your lane. That's like Coachella for cars. It's like a fucking big group of cars, man. My mom likes Drake now. Which is cool because I like Drake too, but me and my mom like Drake very differently. Like my mom believes in Drake. You know? Like I've liked Drake for a long time, so like I know it's not real anymore. But I'm like, I'm wondering at what age are you supposed to tell your parents that Drake isn't real? It's a tough spot, man. My parents uh, my parents got a bunk bed growing up. Anybody else's parents get a bunk bed growing up? The worst part about their divorce was that they didn't get one, but they did keep that bunk bed though. Kept it for a long time. I was always afraid I'd see the car because my dad's bottom bunk where he slept, like stay other for the kids, like super deep. Like he's done it a bunch of times, like a tally of how many more days till my younger brother's turn 18. He can get the, he's like fucking, he's the dude from Castaway basically on his bottom bunk. I was always afraid. I always afraid of that shit, dude. My dad is uh, my boss, so uh, most the pain for my job is on the inside. <laughs> Some people get jealous about my job. They're like, you only have that job because your dad's a boss, your dad owns a company. I'm like, dude, my dad would have fired me so long ago. I have a cool job because of my mom. <laughs> A little life hack. If you let your boss bang your mom, you can say whatever the fuck you want at work and get away with it. You can. So if you don't have uh, parents to work for, then you should get yourself some. Thank you very much, everybody.
3: Very nice. We went from dick jokes to talking about your mom. That's, I like that. That's, I like that. I like that and I get it I get it about the Drake thing because I once stuck up for Kanye West it was actually the worst day of my life so it was a terrible idea it was a terrible idea um all right you guys ready for the next person he is funny he is super super funny I got to stop doing that because I'm hosting. I don't need to move this out of the way because I am hosting now. All right. You guys ready for your next comedian? There we go. Mr. Kevin Wong. (laughs) I
11: love how Evelyn just had porn on her mind when she brought up Chris. Chris Hardinson. Very cool. I should just be Kevin Dong, right? That would be me. (laughs) Who wants to be what? I have no idea. I am um, speaking of porn. Uh, the last two ladies that came out about Donald Trump. The most two recent ones, right? How she they, they came out. The ones that are supposed to hush because they took the hush money. You know, you know how uh they just kind of came out and they just they, they said this pickup line is you remind me of my daughter. I almost I'm pretty sure that Trump's. Password is Ivanka All right. All right, let's move on past that stuff. <laughs> I uh, I so I saw this sign that says historic Milpitas Then I drove through the town and I was like, oh, well, this is a clever way to say don't expect much Don't expect too much. I wonder if, if it's if it would mean anything like if Hayward would still be Hayward we just call it like old town Hayward or historic shithole Oh, okay move on past that I uh historic a word okay I um I was at nation's burger <laughs> I was at nation's burger and I was watching this guy tinder so he's doing the tindering thing and I, and I saw him swipe left I was like oh this is different like this guy actually thinks he's a catch like we're both eating grease at a dirty table and he's got paint on his pants I was like okay all right, got to move on past that. I uh Friday night anything special for Friday night. Nothing. What are you doing? Just here. Just sitting by yeah, just sitting by the bathroom. <laughs> uh, date night. Date, yes, date night. Yeah. What oh, where are you going? Comedy show. Comedy show. <laughs> you know what I like to do? I like to go home and watch Dateline. Dateline is my jam. The murder mystery which just things just happen okay so these are things that i I realize it has to happen in a rural town it can't happen in the city if it's in the city it's just news you know like lady got stabbed in north beach her room is available next week it has to be someplace rural like windsor or like walnut creek or someplace rural number two it's got to be a cute white girl it has to be cute if if she's super hot we just go ah she had it coming (laughs) so number number three it's always a guy with a circular goatee. There's always a guy with, it's, it's, this is what it tells me. It tells me this guy is vain and narcissistic to knowledge that this is not attractive, but dumb enough to think a ring of hair around the lips will bump him up from a soft six to a solid seven capable of murder. So, I, you know, that that, that it encourages me to not date. That's all it really says because I don't wanna try. I just don't want to do the whole dating thing. It's it's dumb, you know. Like you have to pretend to be somebody that you're not, you know. You, then you just have to ride out for rest of your life. I give it up to the people on dateline because those people like we all we all yell it we all yell, oh I'm gonna kill you, I hate you, I'm gonna kill you. These people commit. You know that's <laughs> Okie dokie. Move on past that. I um what else is going on? I uh got my car smogged. Anybody get their car smogged? Oh, yeah. How much? Uh 60 bucks. 60 bucks isn't bad. It, it it's almost like a sliding scale. Like you could pay as much as 180. I paid 33, but it's almost like you have to it's like the shadier the place is, it's like the cheaper they get. It's almost like walking to Chinatown to get your car smogged. It's a little sad. So the place I I got it done at was um was it was called green mile (laughs) it was called green Mile. i was like oh is there like a house mouse is it brought back to life it's michael clark duncan gonna hey how you doing is he gonna work on my car all right got nothing there um what else do i want to try i think that's all i got for tonight so thank you guys so much for for your time (laughs)
3: I think they got that same sliding scale at the Bunny Ranch, huh? Yeah. So uh, your next comedian, uh, I don't know who it is, but her name is Kayla Keller. Give a big round of applause.
10: Hey, this is our second night here. We were here last night. Uh, I'm still kind of high from, from that. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. I slept it off in my car. Uh, it's, it's been a long time since I've done that. And it wasn't shameful. Like, I was proud of it. I was happy to do it. You get to a certain age and a certain number of kids, and you're just proud of that shit. You're like, I can still almost hang. But it's like a way worse walk of shame having to explain it to your three-year-old the next day. Like, this morning, she was like, you don't look so good, Mom. And I was like, let's make waffles. It's going to be all right. Let's just get some Dora going. Let's make waffles. I like how Dora the Explorer is the go-to. Uh, that's a terrible show, but there's worse shows, which I've learned recently. Like, I don't know if you've ever done like the Netflix double deep dive, but there's just like bad claymation ripoffs of Dora the Explorer in French. Like it gets worse, that shit gets worse. Like my kid was on YouTube the other day and I feel like I have to start monitoring her because I don't know what she's watching. And I feel like there's a fine line between like children's programming and children's porn on YouTube. Like it, people are crossing that line. They just want to get, they just want to get the likes. They don't really care. Uh, but, okay, like, I don't want to monitor her too closely. Like, I don't want to harsh her buzz. I like looking over at her, like, curled up like she's back from college, like a high pony and just some yoga pants on. Like, she's just getting it done early, and I respect that. I do. I like it when my kids fight. I like seeing them fight. I'm, I'm the kind of parent, they'll be like, he took my shit, and I'm like, punch him. I don't care. No. I don't want to sort this out. You guys are getting old enough. You can wrestle it out outside. Uh, and it's great, because I, I have a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and a three-month-old, and the two older ones just take care of the little one now. Like, it's like a pyramid scheme of my own creation. Uh. Like, I'm just going to keep having kids, and I like at some point, it's going to be a diminishing return. I'm not going to have to do anything. Just put one more on the pile. It's going to be okay. But it's good. Like, I I get to say shit like I'm a Mormon, and people believe me now, which I've always wanted. I want to be able to go door to door. I want to be like the gypsies. Like, they just put their kids on a street corner and beg, and it's so sad. You make so much money. And I'm just frankly tired of working. So I think I'm going to start doing that. I think it's a good move. Like, I don't care. At this point in my life, I have no more shame. Like, I'm 28, and it's, uh, it's it's all better from here. You know, like, I don't have to work a job. My whole job is making waffles for little people. It's a good gig. It's a good gig. Like, I, I've been trying to teach them not to call me mom. Like, I don't want to harsh my mellow when I'm out. Like, I just want to be a cool nanny. You know, like, I want to go to the playground and dads be like, look at that nanny. That's the vibe I want. Like, I don't wear a ring. I got, I got five, like, like, engagement rings. Like, I get one a year. Like, every year, he's like, this year. I'm like, better luck next time, champ. Better luck next time. Like, I feel like it's a, like a, just a sad little e coach every day. Like, people be like, Do you want to fuck? And I'm like, You left it all out there on the field. You gave it your all. I, I think today's not your day, buddy, but maybe, maybe next time. Maybe next time. You know the look when your man looks at you and you're like, I don't want to give you a dry hand job in the pantry today? Not ag- <laughs> Not again. The kids are napping, your crying's going to wake them he's not here. He's home with the kids. It's fine. It's a good arrangement. I'm a great dad is all I'm saying. I'm a great I'm a great fucking dad. I'm a, you know, and that's how I like it. Like, I like to play hard to get with my kids. I know that shit. I read the book, Why Men wear Marry Bitches, right? That's what I'm implementing with my kids. Keep them wanting more. When's mom gonna be home? I don't know, but we love that bitch. We don't know. We hope to see her soon, but we don't know. Uh, It's weird. I grew up in Marin City, and I feel like I'm the only person who celebrated Kwanzaa every year here, right? Anybody glue kernels of corn on a paper listening to Marvin Gaye tracks? That didn't happen to you guys? That never happened to you? Like It's weird. I feel like I'm always uh, impersonating someone else because I grew up in a school with only black people and like three Vietnamese people. And they were the only ones that would talk to me. And I, it was, do you remember gel pens? Does anybody remember gel pens? You remember that shit? And do you remember like the milky gel pens? I was so pissed they did not show up on my skin at all. I was so jealous. In the 90s, that was such a harsh, such a, such a harsh. Uh, but yeah, I, I grew up and I moved to Sonoma County and I live in Bennett Valley now and I'm not white enough there at all. Like it's not a good look. Like I feel like CPS is gonna knock on my door at any minute and be like, do you have enough kale in here? <laughs> are, your, are, are your kids going to a Montessori preschool? But it's good. I want to make good memories with them. Like someday I want to be like, you know, remember all the times we spent gardening, and they'll be like, "We love that shit, mom." And I'll be like, "Yeah, your little hands made such quick work. I didn't have to pay you guys anything. You were the best trimmers I ever had." <laughs> 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 all right, that's been my time. All right,
3: Kayla. How about, is this all Can we get a no.
11: Uh-huh.
3: Just shove it in. Warm it up first. Oh, that's what the problem is. OK. That was a great, you did a great job. Kayla Keller, you're awesome. Yep. Give her another round of applause. You're awesome. When I was a kid, my, uh, my, I went to my uncle, and I was like, uh, is Santa real? And um, he goes, well, there used to be a Santa. But uh, he got old and he died. So your parents bring you your toys now. And I was just like, wow. And then, uh, and then he told me that the tooth fairy um, comes into your room at night and takes a tooth out, puts money in underneath the pillow, and then teabags you. That's what he told me. <laughs> that's what he told me. And now that I'm an adult and I know like what that means, that's fucking awesome. I love that. That's, I wish I could teabag people. Um, OK, you ready for your next comedian? <laughs> All right. Give it up for Mr. Danny Coleman. Oh, Oh my God. Wait, 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 wait. Give it up for Ms. Danny Coleman.
8: I'm five foot one. I weigh 90 pounds soaking wet. People make that mistake all the time. <laughs> I'm used to it. Uh, so, give me a shout if you're interested in conspiracy theories. Yeah. <laughs> oh, a lot of you. Awesome. Stuff like, you know, The Simpsons predicting 9 11 or, you know, random stuff from the Big Bang Theory or whatever. So, I love thinking about the guys who get it right. It's creepy. But what about the people who get it wrong? And I'm not, I'm not talking like, you know, anyone can sort of shout something into the, into the void and be catastrophically wrong. But I'm talking about the people who get it really, really specifically wrong. Like I was, watching, I was watching a John Mulaney set from, I think, 2011 the other day. And he's doing a bit about observing female friendships. And he says his joke is, 10 years from now, there's not going to be an all-female Ocean's Eleven movie i like, wow, that's, that's not just wrong, right? That's not just wrong, that is specifically wrong. It is very, very weird that he was not just wrong, but he was wrong in a way that almost kind of predicted the future. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, does he know something? Does John Mullaney know something? Is he like some modern day anti-Nostradamus? What's going on here? So then I start looking at his other sets. Like what else? What else was he specifically catastrophically wrong about? Is there stuff in here that I should be paying attention to? Does he give me lottery numbers at some point that he then says are not gonna win? I don't know. And then I think, does this happen to all comedians? Is this something we all get to go through? And, And if so, when does it happen? What level of success do you have to reach to start knowing things? Is it, am I, I going to have my first late night set and next thing I know be inducted into some like clairvoyant comic cabal? Is that how it works? No, no. I bet you it's at the Montreal Comic Festival, right? You do a set at a um, at a gala and then they take you off into the woods and you sacrifice a moose and suddenly you know things. It's Canada. I would believe it. And then ne- next thing I know, I'm looking at every comic set I can think, trying to pinpoint the moment where it happens, where suddenly you become imbued with arcane knowledge from the beyond. Next thing I know, I'm sitting in my darkened living room clutching my cat, rocking backwards and forwards thinking I'm not ready for this level of responsibility the wall in my living room is like the conspiracy wall from a beautiful mine there's John Mulaney right in the center over here there's a whole bunch of Daily Show correspondents up here there's Dave Chappelle Kevin Hart and Cat Williams, I swear to god I'm not trying to racially profile them, they just all seem to know something that I don't. Over here is Dane Cook, he's got nothing to do with it, it was just fun to push a pushpin into his eye. And then my husband comes home, he's like, what's going on? I can't do comedy anymore, he says, I know, I know. Everyone gets insecure, everyone gets performance anxiety, it'll be fine. No, I'm not ready for the responsibility of knowing everything and then having to lie. And not lie well, by the way. I just want to point this out. If you're trying to throw people off the scent of there being an all-female Ocean's Eleven movie at some point in the future, you don't specifically say there will never be an all-female Ocean's Eleven movie in the future, right? You say there'll never be an all-female heist movie. Once you bring up Ocean's Eleven, the game's kind of up. We know. You know. I'm on to you, John Mulaney. Uh, I really don't have an ending to this, except the comedy is some, somehow already even more terrifying than it was before. And yes, here I am. Hi. Bye. I'm Danny. Uh,
3: Danny has the softest hands. Really soft hands. Alright. That was my I gotta recuperate from that a little bit, you guys. Is that right? Because I feel like I feel like just as I was getting one of her points, she was like three points in the bin. Yeah. This was like algebra for me. Um, all right. So next on the list, you guys ready for uh, the next the next comic? I'm sorry. This is the thing. This is how this is how this is how it's spelled. H oh, U yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Huyo? Hugh, yeah. I want to say it right. Okay, cool. Okay, sit back down. Sit back down. We're going to do this right. All right. Wow. So that was really good. Danny, you're awesome. You are clearly from uh, Ohio. Okay, your shirt sure, actually. Um, so uh, all right, you guys ready for your next comedian yeah. All right. your next comedian is hugh Yo
9: takes me a while to get up here guys. How's it going? How we doing? Oh uh, have you guys ever had night terrors? Do you guys know what night terrors are? For those of you night terrors are night terrors are basically when you're trying to fall asleep You're halfway between this world and the dream world You're lying there you go paralyzed. You can't scream. You can't move. You can't fucking say anything And all of a sudden there's a dark presence in the room And all of a sudden the dark presence decides to get on top of you start fucking you doing weird shit to you Back in the day they used to call it either a succubus or an incubus They thought a mythological creature jumped through your window and fucked you while you try to sleep. But now we call it Bill Cosby. <laughs> some creepy shit. Bill Cosby, what's he gonna do now? What's the guy gonna do? I heard he's trying to do some stand up, but I don't know if that's gonna work for him. He's, uh, I heard he was trying to get a job at a morgue, but he was overqualified to handle lifeless bodies. Overqualified. And then he tried to open up a support center for women with narcolepsy. That didn't work. He likes fucking bitches that are asleep, you guys. That's what he likes to do. Oh, man. I think I think he'd be a good, like, women's uh, boxing coach, right? Because uh, there's nobody in this world that's more efficient at knocking bitches out. Yeah. Tell me. Are, is there anybody else you can think of? Nope. Oh, man. I got to lose weight, you guys. It's hard being this big. It's not easy in the dating scene, you know? Uh, I was uh, in the shower for, like, 15 minutes the other day. My dick was still completely dry. It's <laughs> a bad, it's a bad deal. It's terrible. What can you do though, you know? Fuck it. Oh man, yep, I, I tried the Tinder. I tried the Tinder. Uh, they, they canceled my account after like two days. Apparently nobody could swipe me either left or right. It was just dead center, so I was backing up the whole system. <laughs> I sent a girl a full body pic. She sent me back a really angry text. She said I had maxed out her data plan. <laughs> but I thought data plans were unlimited. And she was like, I know, dude. I'm like, can we still go on a date? And She's like, nah, I have a, I have this little thing. She said, I, I don't date guys that are over 350 gigabytes. I was like, ah, all right, then. I need a, I need a, two cell phones to take a selfie. Panoramic view. That's okay Oh uh, what else I thought my, for the longest time I thought my house was haunted Any room I'd go into Shit would just start falling off the shelves So I got one of those healer guys to come and do a sage thing You know you guys ever do the sage thing He's following me around the house And after he goes into every room he's like Dude you don't have a spirit in here there's no ghost in here It's just your fat ass knocking shit over It's just my fat ass knocking things over you guys I got to, I gotta drop some weight When you're just standing And you start sweating profusely <laughs> that's when you know it's a bit of an indicator yeah but um you guys hear fergie's rendition of the national anthem that shit was crazy that bitch was on some she must have tapped into her spirit animal her spirit animal being a coked up cougar in heat <laughs> colin kaepernick her and colin kaepernick are going to do a national disrespect the flag tour they're going to call it you kneel and i squeal That bitch is crazy. What's she going to do now? What the fuck is she going to do? That shit went from Oh Say Can You See to Say Ho Can You Sing? Real quick. Man. She's going to have to do porn now. For sure. She's going to do porn. Watch. She's going to put out a video with R. Kelly. It's going to be called Black Guy Peas. I'll take that. I'll take it it on with me tonight. For sure yep oh man what else i don't got shit else you guys how much time do i got one minute one minute what do you guys want to talk about you guys just don't want to fucking me don't ask me no questions we just want to do our fucking sets motherfucker get off the fucking stage if you got shit to say i think i'll do that thank you very much
3: all right um hey you're your fat shit was good, dude. Yeah. That shit was some good shit. That's
9: what the ladies say all the
3: time. All right. <laughs> That's what the Aww. ladies say all the time. Did you guys, uh, the, um, Bill Cosby's back. Did you guys hear he's going to get on trial again? He's going to be on trial again. It's just ridiculous. Like the last one got really weird. Remember? Like at one point he was like, oh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm too blind. I'm too blind to stand trial, you know? I'm just like, wow, you're not only a rapist, you're a fucking chronic masturbator, you know what I mean? Like, Uh, Jesus. And then Mrs. Cosby, she's the one that really pisses me off, though, because every time I see her on TV or anything, she's walking around like everything's fine. Like, you know what I mean? She's just, like, totally blank face, just out of it. I mean, that's his type, but you know what I mean, right? (laughs) You guys get what I'm saying? All right, uh, you ready for your next comedian? Yes. All right. It's a name I can't pronounce. That's why I brought my phone up here. Wait, hold on a second. Hold, hold on one second. Okay. All right, give it up for Mr. For Utsong.
7: Keep it going for your host. Come on. All right. Um, can you hear me? Oh, yeah. there we go. Um, okay, uh, I'm quick uh, heads up, house rules or whatever, uh, housekeeping, I guess, uh, I'm preparing for an Indian show tomorrow, so two rules, one, pretend you're brown, and that leads to rule number two, pretend you hate white people, all right? Pretty simple. Um, and the name is Utsav, and every mic I go to, they get it wrong, it's one of the hardest Indian names, it's, it's not Ustav, it's not Utsavi, it's Utsav, all right? You're T S A V UTSAV. Can you guys say it? UTSAV. Oh. There's hope, there's hope. Uh, I'll go to a Starbucks, order a cappuccino, tell the barista my name, I'll go, UTSAV, and she goes, what's up? No, 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 UTSAV, U-T-S-A-V, UTSAV. Get my cut back, Gustavo. Uh. It's not a good time to be a Gustavo in America right now. Uh um do you guys have a good saint patty's day we're almost at the end of march did you guys partied up a couple weeks ago do you remember don't remember of course you don't i had a fun saint patty's day my friend and i got high as shit on some sativa i would recommend it um and uh here's the thing when we got high as shit, we ended up in the marina the marina is like san francisco's texas And when you're in the middle of a restaurant, surrounded by white people, high as shit, and you're a little brown person like me, you can't help but realize that there's so many white people in the marina. (laughs) I was afraid, man. That room looked like the dinner scene from the Titanic. (laughs) My friend walked over to me, and he whispered in my ear, and he goes, yo, man, there's only white people in here. And I started rapping as a defense mechanism. For some reason, rappers squat like this, like on DJ Khaled or something. And I go, you know where we at? We in the marina. You know what it is? White person arena. And I got the fuck out of there, man. That was a weird neighborhood. Don't party in the marina anymore. It's a a bad place. Just kidding. I don't know why we're so scared of white people. It's because brown people always are
8: and you have to pretend to be
7: brown. Um, Also, I shouldn't rap. I should leave the rapping to real hip-hop artists. Uh, Any Kanye fans in the house? Any Kanye fans? One, what's your favorite Kanye album? Uh, Come on.
9: Twisted Fantasy
7: one. Uh, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. I love that one. My favorite album is Yeezus. And one of the tracks on Yeezus is titled, I Am A God. The lyrics are pretty questionable, don't you think? They go something like this. I am a god, so hurry up with my damn massage in a French-ass restaurant, so hurry up with my damn croissants. Why is Kanye getting massages in a French restaurant? And why is Kanye mid-massage carb-loading you guys? Doesn't he know that it's not really the recipe for therapy, huh? You see, I grew up in India and moved to this country from a small town called Hyderabad. Okay, and I moved here 10 years ago, so this right here, 2018, is actually my 10-year anniversary. Come on, 10 years in America? Yeah. I learned this accent just for that applause, man. Um, But although I moved here from India, I feel like I could do a way better job than Kanye at rapping. Except the lyrics to my track would be, I am a fob. And here's how they would go. I am a fob. All the way from Hyderabad, in an Indian restaurant. So hurry up, with my garlic naan. <laughs> I'm so happy you guys know what garlic naan is. I did the last couple of jokes with four girls from the marina in North Beach. They they thought garlic naan was Italian bread. What? Yeah, actually. Yeah, I know. the The joke before that about the white people, they wanted me deported for sure. <laughs> Not like that shit. Um. I just started comedy last month and it's been super fun, but uh, people confuse me for more successful Indian comics all the time. A couple of weeks ago at Cobbs on a Sunday, I was hanging out and they were like, hey man, you're Janesh, right? You had a really good set. You should definitely headline next time. And I was like, of course, man. I would love the headline. Just to give me a spot, but I'm not Janesh. And uh, one of my friends walked up to me and he was like, yo man, listen up. Are you trying to be the next Aziz? And I was like, Yo, man, listen up. <laughs> how could you be so dumb? I am not Aziz. I didn't stick my fingers in her mouth. <laughs> and that's how Aziz ruined it for all of us. That's my time. Give it up for your host. Thank you, guys.
3: All right. That was awesome great energy did you really just start comedy a month ago yeah all right you had to put that energy somewhere huh <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's like I've been humping the couch and now I gotta take it on the road <laughs> I get that I get that I um I, I I I love rap music I love rap music and I'm so white that people make fun of me all the time because yeah. it's like I'm, walk- I'm like driving down the street in my mini Cooper convertible I couldn't get, I'm, couldn't get any, any more wider, And I'm like listening to Dr. Dre, you know, and my friends are always like, uh, they're like, how can you listen to that music? You know, it degrades women. You know, they're always talking about getting high and shooting guns. I'm like, it's just a snapshot of their day, guys. They're just kind of like showing us what they do every day. You shouldn't be so, you know, that was new. And I just think it's terrible. I got to work on it. <laughs> I gotta work on it. I gotta work on it. All right, um, give it up for your next comic
5: coming.